Well, we've finished our series on Advent, and next week Nick will be jumping back into Philippians. But to start out the new year, we wanted to talk about our prayer theme for the year, uh, which is Christ-centered living or Christ-centered lives. Uh, So before I start, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, I pray that you would turn our hearts now towards you, that you would soften them to receive your word, and I pray that you would um, allow the words that I speak to be true and from you, um, and that we would receive them, and I pray that we wouldn't leave here the same as we came, but that you would have something for us today that we can walk away with, um, that we would draw closer to you, that we'd become more like your son. In your name, amen. So our prayer theme for this year is Christ-Centered Lives. Um, This kind of coincides with our overall uh, theme of pointing people to the cross of Christ. And that starts with those that are here, the body of Christ, that we want to point each other towards the cross. Um, And then also, as we go outside these walls, we want to point others to the cross of Christ. Um, So as opposed to last year, where we've had three or four different prayer themes, we have just one this year, and we're going to kind of break it up into quarterly or somewhat quarterly sub-themes that will focus on um, all around the idea of Christ-centered lives. And so if we're going to be praying about Christ-centered lives in 2020, then it's important for us to know what it is that we are praying for. Instead of just praying for something that sounds good and sounds nice, um, we wanted to take this time and actually look at what does it mean to live a Christ-centered life? Um, If I were to ask you guys, what does it mean? The answer is easy. Well, it's a life that's centered around Christ. But then I hear that voice in the back of my head. I think it's my English teacher that says, you can't define a word using the same words that you're defining. And so then it got a little bit more hard to define when I couldn't use the words Christ-centered or life. Um, So that's what we're going to try to accomplish today. And so what, more importantly than how do we define a Christ-centered life, is what does it look like? Does it mean that you go to church every Sunday? Do you read your Bible every day? Are you praying at every meal? Does it mean that you wear Jesus t-shirts or that you post verses or share memes on Facebook? What does it mean to live the Christ-centered life? So to figure this out, we're going to look at Hebrews 12, uh, verses 1 through 3. And I'll have it up on the screen, but I'd encourage you also to turn there in your Bibles. Um, And our goal for today is to answer three questions. The first thing that we want to ask is, what is a Christ-centered life? Then we want to ask, why should we live a Christ-centered life? If we know what it is, why is it important for us as Christians to live a life that's Christ-centered? And then finally, I want to address the question of how do we do this? How do we live a Christ-centered life? So what, why, and how? So what is Christ-centered living? Let's look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We start out our passage in verse 1 with therefore. 
And so I think, Nick, you've already mentioned this. Whenever we see a therefore in Scripture, we ask what? What's it there for? All right. So in chapter 11, right before chapter 12, we just finished talking through what is commonly referred to as the Hall of Faith. It is a list of those men throughout Scripture who lived their lives by faith and accomplished great things by faith. And so having looked at these people, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we are surrounded by all of these people who have walked before us in the faith. I kind of think of this, like if you ever go to a sporting event and you're in the arena and they have the jerseys of those players that are retired, that have played really well before, they're up there to remind those players that these are the people whose footsteps you're walking in. Or uh, Smith and I had the chance to go to uh, the Patriots Stadium. They actually have a Patriots Hall of Fame within the stadium. So instead of you know, using that space to put more food stands in or to make more money, although they do sell admission to it, so they make a little bit of money, they put something there to commemorate the great players of the past, to encourage those current players to live up to those high expectations. Or for us, when we were at seminary, it was amazing how many plaques there were on the wall of past people who had graduated from the seminary or who had been teachers or presidents who had lived full lives of faith and accomplished great things, and it encouraged you on. It's not as these people were watching you as you went and wrote your paper or anything like that, but you were walking in the same steps that they had walked through at one point. And that is what the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage us with, that we are walking the same walk as those that have gone before that have done great things in faith. Now, God's not necessarily calling us to walk around a city until the walls fall down or to part a Red Sea so that his people can cross through, but he has a journey of faith for each of us, and so we follow in their footsteps by living by faith. So we are surrounded by them, not as though they are watching us, but that they are the inspiration for us as we go. So what should we do since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses? Well, there's these two phrases that start with the phrase, let us. In English, we have an easy way to make a command. If I say, go clean your room, that's a command that I give towards someone else. But in Greek, they have a way that you can give a command to yourself, which in English sounds kind of weird. It's like you're talking to yourself, like, go clean your room. But when we actually say in English, we're like, I need to go clean my room. Or if you're talking with someone else, you're like, hey, we need to clean the house, or let us go clean the house. Let's go and do this thing. And that's what is happening here. So this is actually not just like a, hey, this is great, let's kind of do this. No, this is a let us do this. It's a first-person imperative saying we must do this. And there's two things that we must do. The first thing is sort of a precursor to the second. So in the Greek, this first one's kind of setting the stage. It says you need to do this one first, so that you can do the second one. So it's like if you say, son, go put on your shoes and take out the trash. You don't, you're not really satisfied if your son just goes and puts on their shoes and then goes back to playing video games. That's not the point. The point of the command was to take out the trash. And so here, the two commands, the first one is to let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. And so this is preparing. It's not, the Christian life is not solely about just getting rid of sin. That's a very important part, but if we live our lives just saying, I'm just going to try to live as good as I can and not sin, and we don't recognize that it's about a relationship, that we're living with God, then we're missing the point. 
When I was in high school, I was trying to figure out what it meant to live a good Christian life, and I would come across these passages where Paul says, the works of the flesh are, and he would list like 15 things. And I remember I like wrote all these down. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be a good Christian, I have to stop doing these things. And that's what my Christian walk was like for about a year, was just me trying in my own ability and strength to stop doing these things. It's the first step, but that's not where we're supposed to end up. The second one is where we're supposed to go. We're supposed to run. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so we lay off these sins. If you imagine like a weight vest or ankle weights, we throw them off so that we can run faster. They estimate that every pound that you put on adds about one to two seconds per mile. And so when you put on 10 pounds, you begin to add 10 to 20 seconds to your mile time. And if you look at this over the course of a marathon, over a long race, the weight begins to weigh you down more and more and exhaust you. And so it's important, just if you told your son, put your shoes on and go outside, take out the trash, it's not good for him to just go outside barefooted in the mud and the snow and take out the trash. There's something that has to happen first. We need to be focused on taking off the sin, but it can't stop there. We have to run this race with endurance. Running the race is something that Paul will often use, as the author of Hebrews does, to talk about how we live our lives. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about how runners run to win a prize. And so we should run the race of our lives in order to win a prize, looking forward to the end. In Philippians 2, which we covered a few weeks ago, um, Paul says that he holds fast to the word so that he won't run in vain. If you imagine somebody running a race but doesn't have like a number bib on, they're running in vain. All their effort is for nothing. It doesn't count. In 2 Timothy, um, twice, The first time in chapter 2, Paul compares the Christian life to three things. He says, being a Christian is like being a soldier. You have to be solely focused on the war at hand. You can't be worried about the things of the world that are going on. You need to be focused. He says it's like an athlete. You have to run to win the prize. You have to run and train. And he also says they're like a farmer who receives the first fruits of the harvest. And so I always kind of think of those things in my Christian walk. I'm a soldier. I'm a soldier for Christ. I'm also an athlete. I'm supposed to be training myself and preparing to run this race of life. And I'm also a farmer. There's a harvest out there to be had. And God has called us to go out and harvest. And then finally, at the end of his life, Paul says, I have run the race. I have finished the course. And so this idea of a race is equivalent to life. So when we talk about running with endurance the race, we could say live your life with endurance. Then in verse 2, we see the manner that we run the race. We do it looking to Jesus. And so as we live our lives, we look to Jesus. We are focused on Christ. There we go. That's a Christ-centered life. Now we know exactly how to do it, right? Not quite. I got to this point, and I'm like, okay, there it is. Now what does this mean? What does it mean looking to Jesus. How do we do that? Does that mean that I put a picture up in my bedroom of Jesus and every morning I look at it and I say, okay, I'm living for Jesus. And then I go out the door? Maybe, but that's that's not the extent of it. So in order to see, let's continue looking. We see that we look at Jesus and it describes him as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. In the Greek, the two words founder and perfecter, some 
versions say author, that word founder is the Greek word arche, which means the beginning. He is the starter. And the perfecter is telos, the end, the finisher. So he is the start and the finish of our race. We begin with him, we end with him. There's no one other than him. And so we look to him as all of our faith. So this race, we start with him. Our race doesn't start until we put our faith in him. We must trust in him and his death for the payment for our sins. Without doing this, we're like a pedestrian who hops the fence at the Boston Marathon and begins running. It's in vain. We could try as much as we could to be a good religious Christian. But if we don't have faith in Christ, we are running in vain. There is no point. We're exerting a lot of effort, and it's doing nothing. We must start with him, but we also finish with him. Once we are in this race, we move towards Christ. But where is Christ? How do we move towards him? Well, if we see at the end of this verse that Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he is sitting beside God on his throne. Where there's a throne, there's a kingdom. And Christ is there at the right hand, showing that he has the authority, that he is in a position of power in this kingdom. And if you've read the Gospels, you see when Christ came to earth, he talked a lot about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. And so if we are moving towards Christ, seated on the throne in his kingdom, what is the kingdom of God? Simply put, it's God's reign over his world. If we think back to creation, which we started about a year ago going through the book of Genesis, and we talked about how God created the world and he was sovereign over it because everything came from him. And he ruled over it and it was all perfect. He looked at everything that he said and behold, it was very good. But things didn't stay that way. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God's kingship. They decided to try to make themselves kings. They wanted to be like God. And so they disobeyed and took the fruit from the tree and ate. Choosing instead to serve the king of darkness, the king of the world. And so when they rebelled, they were removed from God's kingdom because their sin disqualified them from being part of his kingdom. God is holy and his people must be holy. And so in order for us to be his people, we can't have sin in us. But every one of us since Adam and Eve have carried on our sin nature and that rebellious nature that wants to do things our way. And in order for us to be part of this kingdom, this sin problem has to be taken care of, but we can't do it ourselves. We can't fix our own sin problem. So Jesus comes to fix the sin problem. And when he comes, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. You think of somebody that's walking up the sidewalk to your house. It's right there. It's almost coming. And Jesus says, it's at hand. It's going to be here soon. Because Jesus knows that he's going to die and to pave a way that we can be reconciled to God, that we can be part of his kingdom once again. And so he declares the kingdom of God is at hand. There is hope. And we put our faith in Christ. He cleanses us from our sins through his death on the cross, and we become part of his kingdom. But yet there's still that part of us, that part that Paul calls our flesh. 
that doesn't want to be part of the kingdom of God. In fact, it wants to rebel against the kingdom of God. And we live our lives every day with this inner battle. Paul calls it between the, the spirit and the flesh. That part of us desires to serve God and to worship him, and our flesh desires to serve ourselves and to do what feels good in the moment. And so if we're living our lives moving towards the throne of God, towards, the, towards Christ and his kingdom, we are doing it by moving and placing more of our life underneath the lordship of Christ, placing more of our life under his rule and giving up our right to make decisions for what we want, when we want it, how we want it. Essentially going against everything our American culture teaches us. So the kingdom of God in our lives is continuing to surrender more of our lives to his lordship. But it's not just our lives, it's also the world around us. We're called to bring others into the kingdom, and so we share the good news of the kingdom of Christ with others. God calls us that we are ambassadors of reconciliation, that we are his messengers that he has here on the earth to call other people to be part of his kingdom. And so we advance his kingdom throughout the world by bringing things under his rule. So in this way, Jesus is the direction that we go. We continue to move more towards him and towards his rule in our lives. But he's not just the direction that we go. He's not just the start and the end, but he's also the model that we follow. In verse 3, it starts with consider him. Because the author knows that this is not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to just live our lives and surrender to Christ. Sometimes it's going to cost us. Sometimes there's going to be suffering. Sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable. Sometimes you're just going to want to relax. And you feel God calling you to go and meet a need that somebody else has. And so what do we do in those moments? Or even in those moments where speaking up for Christ could cost you your job, could cost you a friendship, a relationship. How do we submit to the kingship of Christ then? We consider him. And we consider that he endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that he endured suffering just as he is calling us to, that he isn't a king who sits on his throne, never having suffered, never having worked a day in his life, and just calling others to sacrifice while he sits there without sacrifice. He sacrificed it all. So as we move towards him in his kingship, we live like him, which makes sense. In order to get closer to him, we need to be more like him. Or think of this example. My dad has been farming for as long as I can remember. And if he came to me this spring and said, David, I'm not going to be around to plant crops this spring, but I'll be back in the fall for the harvest— I would like you to plant the crops and tend to them and make sure that they're ready for when I come back to harvest. Make my kingdom of my fields the way that I like them so when I come back, the harvest is good. There's a problem. I don't know how to farm. <laughs> I have spent a lot of time with my father, but I haven't spent much time with him as he's been farming, not since I was like six years old and I rode in the combine with him. And so I don't know where he gets his seed from. I don't know what fields need planted where. I don't know what time to plant them, how to tell if the ground is dry enough, and probably like a hundred other things that farmers consider that I've never considered a day in my life because I hadn't spent time around my dad. But if I had, and I'd gotten to know how he 
harvest, how he plants, what fertilizers, what pesticides, where he plants things, how to fix the machinery when it breaks, then maybe I would be able to be like him in order to get to the goal that he has set for me. And so in the same way, we have to be like Christ and we need to know what he is like in order to get to where he is, in order to be like him, in order to bring our lives into submission under his kingdom. We might know that the end goal is for God to bring all of creation into submission underneath his plans. Just like I know the end goal is to have fields that are ready to be harvested and full of crops. But unless we know him, we can't know how to get there. We're just guessing. So Christ is not just the direction that we're going, but he's also the model that we follow. We see the life that he lived and we follow that example. So with this in mind, the question, what is a Christ-centered life? This is the definition that I came to. A Christ-centered life is every aspect of our existence following the model of Christ in order to advance the kingdom of Christ. So breaking this down, the first part, every aspect of our existence, this is what I decided to transfer in for the word life, since I can't use the word life in my, existence, or in my definition. But really, it comes down to every aspect of our existence. It's not just our Sunday mornings. It's not just the 30 seconds before a meal that we stop and pray. It's our finances. It's our diet. It's our relationships. It's where we choose to live, where we choose to work. Everything falls under that category of whatever composes our existence must follow the model of Christ and advance the kingdom of Christ. So even our time, what do we do with our time? What do we do with our health? Do we take care of our bodies in a way that follows the model that Christ set? That whatever he ate or drank was to the glory of God? the small everyday little things, but also the big life-changing things, having children, getting married, jobs, houses, cars, vacations, where you go, what you do. All of it should follow the model of Christ in order to advance the kingdom. So first, we follow the model of Christ and how he lived through the word and through what he taught to his disciples. And we do this in order to advance the kingdom of Christ, not to make our lives more comfortable or not because that's the popular thing to do. We do it because we see that we are ambassadors of Christ and he sent us to make his kingdom known throughout the earth. And so we make every aspect of our lives under submission to who? To him. Our second question, why? Why would we do this? It sounds a little crazy. It sounds a little uncomfortable. And it sounds a little bit like a lot of hard work. It kind of sounds like something like we'll never get there, we'll never be done, and it's going to be something that we're working at the rest of our lives. So why would we embark on this journey? Two reasons that I have. Love and joy. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, gives us the reason of love. It says that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we fully grasp the magnitude of God's sacrifice for us and the magnitude of our undeservedness, how much we did not deserve that sacrifice, we should feel his love, we should know his love, and we should respond in love. It ought to evoke out of us a desire to love him back because we know that he gave up everything so that we who had nothing could have everything. In the same way that you would respond to somebody who paid off a debt that you owed of $100,000 and that you knew would take you a lifetime to repay. Would you be just kind of indifferent towards that person? How much more so someone that paid off an eternal debt? that we could absolutely never pay, no matter how much we did. And when we think, I know that God did that, and that's all great, but it's my life. Like, I just want to live it the way that I want to live it. I think we don't understand the magnitude of the gospel. We don't understand the brokenness of our lives, and we don't understand the great sacrifice. And so if that's where we're at in our hearts, we need to turn back to the gospel. We need to return to the gospel and ask the Lord to change our hearts. The second reason that we should live like this is joy. In fact, we see this example from Jesus in Hebrews 2, or 12 to 2. We go back here where it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Christ was getting ready to go to the cross in the garden, praying, Lord, not your will, but not my will, but your will be done. He did not want to go to the cross. He knew it would be excruciating, not just physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every aspect of his existence, to take on the weight of the world. But he did it for the joy set before him. He endured because he was able to look into the future and see joy. He was able to see that there was good that could come from this. I imagine that he probably even knew those of us who would trust in him. And he knew the difference it would make in our lives, the sacrifice that he paid in our internal existence. And so for that joy that was set before him, that was yet to come, he endured. He's our example. He suffered through unimaginable suffering for the joy that was to come. So in the same way that we can lay down our lives because we know there's a greater joy in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So this light momentary affliction that we feel is so hard in the light of eternity is as heavy as a tissue and not even that. When we consider the eternal weight of glory that is awaiting us, It goes beyond all comparison. And so we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. They won't last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. They are forever. So consider this example. I'm chilling by myself. I just want to relax. And I decide that I'm going to watch a movie. So I pull up Netflix. And as I'm scrolling through Netflix, I come across a movie which some people have told me is really entertaining and fun, but I also know that it has some content in it that doesn't honor God. 
and I know that by watching this movie, it's probably going to tempt me into sin, and it's going to lead me away from God instead of drawing me closer to God. I might sit there and think, well, it's just two hours. I can read my Bible afterwards. It's okay. I'll, you know, do a little bit of damage to my relationship with God and then go and fix it up. No big problem. Besides, I'll have fun. And does God really care? So that is a temporary mindset focused on the things that are seen, focused on the potential pleasure and entertainment that's right in front of us and feeling the weight of that discomfort of not watching the movie and how much we'll be missing out. It's just so heavy and we can't bear it. Or I could consider in light of eternity that two hours of worldly entertainment can't compare to an eternity of godly joy. And in fact, in uh, Psalms 16.11, it says that at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So if in God is more pleasures than what any sort of entertainment could give me, why would I decide to watch something that would separate me from God? That would put distance in my relationship just to enjoy something and to be relieved of this momentary pressure of wanting to enjoy something. Or pictured married couple Bob and Susan. Susan's out running errands and Bob is at home when he gets hungry. Bob goes to the fridge. Bob finds a piece of chocolate cake from the restaurant last night that they ate at together. Bob knows his wife. Bob knows that she intentionally ordered that chocolate cake to eat today and that she really wants it. But Bob is hungry. If Bob eats the cake, Bob will have 15 minutes of chocolatey bliss. He will enjoy those 15 minutes, and in a few hours, when Susan gets home, the bliss will be gone. There will be probably some arguing, and there will be some tension, a lack of trust, maybe a secret fridge in another part of the house that stores all the chocolate cake from now on. And this will probably come up two years from now in some argument as Susan remembers how he ate her chocolate cake that one night when that was the only thing she wanted in the earth. It creates tension. It creates separation in this relationship. So Bob, being a smart husband that he is, sits there and decides, I can enjoy 15 minutes of chocolate enjoyment followed by an evening, day, two days, who knows how long of relational tension with my wife, or I can forego that pleasure of chocolate and enjoy a peaceful evening with my wife. What do you think Bob chooses? <laughs> I don't know. There is no Bob. He's fictional. <laughs> if Bob is a smart man, he chooses not to eat the cake. In the same way, when we choose to indulge our flesh and create separation in our relationship between God, we are choosing to enjoy momentary things that create separation in our intimacy with God. It, it separates us from being able to know him on a deeper level. And he is so much better to know than any spouse, than any other person, than any relationship that we could have. At his right hands are pleasures forevermore. And you're willing to give that up for two minutes, for two hours of worldly pleasure. As I'm preaching this sermon, I'm kind of like the author of Hebrews. I'm saying, let us do this. I, this is probably the sermon that I've most had to preach to myself. 
And so as I'm up here, I don't want you guys to think that I'm calling you to stop watching Netflix. I had to decide last night whether I wanted to take a break in my sermon prep and watch the Patriots game. And that was a, a difficult battle for me. And I caught the end, and it was sad. Um, <laughs> and so I, with you guys, want to encourage all of us together to consider the joy that is our relationship with Christ when we are trying to choose whether we want to submit to Christ or we want to submit to our own desires. Think about the love that he showed towards us and the joy that we can have in him. This is why we ought to live our lives Christ-centered. So how do we do this? How do we take every aspect of our existence and shape it so that it follows the model of Christ so that our lives advance the kingdom of God. It starts with relationship. We can only live a Christ-centered life when we walk in relationship with this. If you can't tell, I had the Patriots on my mind last night, so another illustration. Consider that I was sitting there last night and there's all this talk about Tom Brady retiring and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be the next great NFL quarterback. I'm going to take that mantle and I see them show his stats beforehand, and by golly, he's the exact same height and weight that I am. So, you know, I'm sure there's different proportions of muscle and other things, but same height, same weight. I bet if I really devote myself, and I, I watch game film, and I see exactly how he throws, and I, you know, I order his cookbook, he has a cookbook out, and, and I follow his diet to the T, and I follow his workout regimen and everything like that, and I read all the books that I can on his leadership, and I try all of these things. Do you think I have a shot? You guys are kind. <laughs> Just silence. No, of course not. I mean, even if I started 20 years ago when I was 10 years old, I don't have a shot. But consider scenario two. I'm Tom Brady's son. And at a young age, I decide, I want to be a great quarterback in the NFL like my dad. And so I go to my dad, Tom Brady, and I say, will you show me how to be a great quarterback? And so every day, he teaches me how to throw a ball, how to read defenses, how to condition, how to work out, how to watch game film. And as I grow up, he becomes my personal coach, and he comes to my games, and he gives me feedback. And we talk through things. We watch game film together, and he shows me how to correct my throwing technique. Now I have a shot. The difference between these two is there's a relationship. In that second one, in that second scenario, there's a relationship that allows me to reach my goal. In the same way, when we have that relationship with God, when it's not just about what we do religiously, but when we actually spend time with him, that is how we can live a Christ-centered life. If we try to do it just by sheer force of will, we'll never get there. So this is why we're starting out the year with our Sunday school class that we're doing. As elders, if we have prayed and, and thought through how do we, um, what should our prayer theme be, we decided to keep it really simple and decided that it starts, a Christ-centered life starts with relationship. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about how to read your Bible, how, not just, you know, how to pick it up and read the words, but how do you find application from it? How do you study it? How do you memorize it? How can you develop that relationship with God through prayer? 
how can you pray prayers of lament and prayers of praise? How do you express what you're feeling to God and invite him into the deepest parts of your soul? And how do you do this in community? How do you share this with one another through hospitality? How can that hospitality, or even just showing up to Sunday morning, how can that make us more like Christ? So this is where we want to go, and the temptation, at least for me, maybe you guys are holier than me, and this won't be a problem, but the temptation is to see all of these spiritual practices that we're teaching and just to be like, okay, I need a checklist now. I'm going to do all of these, and I'm going to get it right. And I'm going to treat my relationship like I treat my relationship with my computer, and I'm going to run all the virus checks. I'm going to make sure everything's... God's not a computer. He's not a vending machine that you put the right things in, you get the right things out. It's, he's a person. We have a relationship with him as a person. And so our goal is that maybe through some of these spiritual practices, you'll find something that connects with your soul and connects you to God and allows you to deepen that relationship and not just put another task on the list of things that you need to do. So christ in our life starts with relationship. And I would encourage you guys to come and to not just hear, but also to share with others what has helped you deepen your relationship with Christ? So it starts with that relationship. And then if we go to Hebrews 12, 2, this race that we're running, there's two words I want to point out and talk about how do we live these out. The first one is the word run. Running means you exert energy. You're not sitting, you're not standing, you're not just merely walking to get from one place to another, but you're doing it with purpose. You're doing it with intention. And so we must run. We must exert effort. It doesn't come about, a Christ-centered life doesn't come about just by sitting back and doing nothing or by just going to church and doing what everyone else is doing. There needs to be some intentionality. There needs to be some purpose. The second word is the word endurance. That we need to run, we need to move with intentionality and purpose, but we also need to do it with the long view in mind. So there's, two, there's kind of two ends. If you think of somebody running the Boston Marathon, they can be on the one end and they're going to be like, I'm just going to walk it. If you walk the Boston Marathon, you won't finish it unless you have extremely long legs because it's going to take you around an eight and a half hours to walk it and they shut the whole thing down after eight hours. Or you could be on the other side and you're like, I'm going to sprint it. I know I can sprint 20 miles per hour for a quick burst and if I can just do that for 26 miles, I'll finish it in like an hour and I'll be done. Everyone's laughing because you know that the normal human being can only sprint for about eight seconds until you start to slow down and you get exhausted. So in scenario one, you get that dreaded DNF, did not finish. You might make it 23, 24 miles, but over here, you sprint all out, exhaust, pass out after mile one, did not finish. And so there's a balance that we have to do. We have to have some purpose and we gotta move but we have to have the long term in mind. So, so what does this mean for the Christian life? It means that we need to think now and we need to think long term. We need to think now, what effort are we putting into these areas of our lives? What effort are we putting into cultivating our relationship with Christ? What effort are we putting into becoming more like the model that Christ gave us? And what effort are we putting right now into advancing God's kingdom in our lives and the lives around us? Are we putting effort into that or are we just kind of pacing 
and just walking and not moving. The Christ-centered life is not a life that just says, someday when I retire, then I'll start evangelizing. Or once I have enough money saved up, then I'll start giving. I'll start being generous. Or I'll be more gentle like Christ. I'll conform to his model of gentleness when the people I work with stop being idiots. No, we put the effort in now. We don't wait for our circumstances to change. We move now. But we also have to think long term. We can't be like the person who thinks, all right, I'm going to be generous like Christ. I'm going to give away all of my possessions only three years later to be homeless and needing to receive from others because you didn't steward well. You didn't have a long-term plan in mind. You were just trying right now to give as much as you could or to the person who tries to go into ministry and they just pour themselves out without thinking that they want to do this for the next 30 to 40 years. And so after two years, they become burnout and exhausted. We have to run, we have to move with purpose, but we have to do it with a long term in mind. And so I want to challenge you also to think long term, to think 10, 20, 30 years from now, what could I be doing so that my relationship with Christ is more intimate and deeper than it's ever been? What would that look like for 30 years from now? Or what would it look like for me to be more like Christ? Or what would it look like for me 30 years from now to advance the kingdom of God more than I ever thought possible? These are questions that can take some time, prayer, and community to answer. We're not going to like, you know, have, you might have this moment here today where you're just like, this is what it is. But more than likely, it's going to take some time and some prayer, and it's going to take that relationship with Christ. But we need to consider all areas of our life. In the short term, do you need to start putting more effort and setting aside time for reading scripture or praying? Or do you need to find an accountability partner? Somebody to encourage you to be more like Christ and to take care of sin that has been clinging to you? Or is there an area of your life that you're withholding from God's rule, that you are trying to do all on your own? Or do you need to be more involved in advancing God's kingdom here in Lima while you're here? While God has called you to this church, to the workplace that you're working, is there something that you need to be doing now? And then long-term, is God causing you to live wisely with your finances and to be strategic so that in 10 years from now, you might be able to single-handedly support an entire missionary family? Imagine what that would look like if you had that long-term goal in mind. Or maybe now you invest spiritually in all these kids that are one, two, three years old, knowing that in 20, 30 years, they might be advancing the kingdom of God. And so you think long-term. Or should you devote yourself to studying the Bible so that you're equipped to be able to teach others what the Bible has to say? And, and remember, we're talking every aspect of your life. So maybe this even means, do I need to change my diet so that in 10, 20 years, I'm healthy enough to still be effective for the kingdom of God? So I'm still able to be around and to not be bedridden or to not be so focused with my weight, or other issues that come up as a result of an unhealthy lifestyle. And this is what Christ meant when he said, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. What would it look like for all of your life to be devoted to the glory of God and to be centered on Christ? 
being that this is one of our prayer themes, we're going to spend some time praying about it. And I would encourage you, um, today we're just going to spend some time, allow you to pray by yourself and to reflect. Um, write some things down if God lays anything on your heart. And then in the upcoming weeks and months, we'll also spend some time praying as a community about this. But let me encourage you now to take some minute, a few moments and to pray and to ask God, what is he calling you to do? What would it look like for your life to be Christ-centered in this season? I'll close this out in prayer and then the worship team will come up and lead us in a final song after this. Let's pray.